Good morning. It's great to see you this morning. It's been a good day already. Um, for those of you who don't know, uh, you may have heard I wrote a book. Uh, it's called Finding Jesus. We just started putting it out. It's thanks. You don't even know if it's good or not. You're clapping. So, uh, but just so you know what it's about, it's it. I, I originally wrote it. My my first uh, motive in writing was I wanted to write something that people could give to their non-Christian friends who maybe don't understand who Jesus was and what Jesus is all about. We get mixed up in, this, in our culture, even Christians. What is Christianity? Uh, we get caught up into religious traditions. We get into politics and all kinds of things that don't have anything to do with the gospel. And so I thought, why not write something to show someone who says, man, I, I hate Christianity because, or I could never be a Christian because, and just say, well, have you ever thought about figuring out who Jesus really was? You don't have to become a Baptist. You don't have to be part of my church. But have you ever thought about who Jesus actually was? And this book was written so you could use it for that purpose. But I also divided it up into enough readings that you could use it as a daily devotional and it would last you a whole year. So if you want to use it that way, if you just want to read it uh, straight through uh, for your own benefit, that's up to you. Uh, but it's available. I, I ordered a bunch of copies. I didn't order enough. So I'm out. But you can get it on Amazon. You have, you have to search under my name, Jeff Berger. Um, I'm ordering a bunch more, so they'll be here, Lord willing, Sunday after next, if you want to wait until then. But just wanted to let you know about that. Um, so turn with me to Psalm 130. We are closing our series today on the Psalms of Ascent. That little section of Psalms, Psalm, uh, right in the middle of the Psalms, Psalm, Psalm 120 through 134, that the Jews would sing as they went on pilgrimage, walking to the promised land, walking to Zion, walking to the temple in Jerusalem for their annual festivals. Three times a year they would go and worship God there. These were the songs they would sing as they walked in community to prepare their hearts, to get ready to connect with God. And so we're hoping that we can all connect with God better as we head into the Christmas season. Now, I was a very fortunate young man. Growing up, I had all four of my grandparents right nearby. I mean, within a few miles. In fact, all four of my grandparents were still alive when I was 30. And I, I just lost my last grandmother this last year. My grandma Berger died at the age of 100 this last, uh, just a few months ago. Um, so I find myself, I, I count myself very fortunate, but also I like to see things through the eyes of my grandparents. I learned a lot from them. Sometimes I will see things happen in the world and I'll think, wow, what would my grandparents think of that? Sometimes I even think, man, I'm glad grandma and grandpa aren't alive to see this. They wouldn't know what to do. So I thought it would be fun, and we were talk based on what we're talking about today in Psalm 131, to imagine, what if you took my mom's dad, my grandpa Williams, who was a dairy farmer, fought in World War II, served in World War II, uh, what if you took him, put him in a time machine, and brought him to the present day, and he met somebody 75 years later who was the same age? So this is what it might be like, if you'll watch the screens. Where am I? What year is this? Like, for real, it's 2K19. 2019? Oh, hello, my name is Cecil. I think I just time-traveled. You see, where I'm from, it's 1944. Neat. What's that like? Well, I grew up in Texas during the Great Depression. Currently, I'm serving in the Navy in a battleship in the Philippines. When the war is over, I'm going back home to my wife, 
in our dairy farm. <laughs> Tell me about you. My name's Jazz with three Z's. I'm an influencer. An influencer? Is that what they call a school teacher in 2019? No, see, I was on this TV show. TV? I was one of 25 women that this guy was dating, and he slowly eliminated girl after girl until he chose the one he loved the most. And he chose you, right? No, I didn't even make the final five. He chose this girl named Alexis from Wisconsin. She had like the world's shiniest hair or something. Devin, that's the guy from the show. He said she was like his soulmate or something. So they lived happily ever after? No, they divorced in like six months, but that's not the point. Enough people saw me that my name became familiar. And now I go on Instagram a few times a week. Instagram? Is that like a new telegram? Telegram? Anyway, I go on Insta and tell people about things that'll make their lives better. I get it. You tell people to get a good education, save their money, and love those around them. Hashtag not exactly. I did this one video where I was washing my face with this new cleanser and I just had to tell everyone how great it was. Wow. That must be some really great symbol. Well, actually, the day I shot the video was the only day I ever used it. Yesterday, I posted a pic of me in these adorb sandals that were just like the most comfy ever. Were they really? Honestly, they feel like walking on other people's toenail clippings. But these companies, like the soap company and the shoe company, they pay me lots of money. Yeah, I have like this really awesome car and these amazing clothes and I can pretty much buy like whatever else I want. Like millions of people watch me and I'm like such an inspiration to them. But you know, I'm hoping next year to get back on TV. Alexis, the girl that won the show that I was on, she has like twice as many followers as I do. I bet if I get back on TV, I can be even bigger than her. I'm about to break the internet, bay. I'm gonna tweet that. Is there anyone else from 2019 I can talk to? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Good job. So for those of you who don't know, that was Kayla Lyons as the influencer and my son Will as his great-grandfather. So uh, I thought that was kind of cool. Uh, but I hope you enjoyed that because the rest of this isn't going to be much fun. I'll just tell you, the rest of this is just not going to be fun. It's going to be difficult. In fact, some of you heard of Charles Spurgeon. He was one of the great preachers of all time. He called Psalm 131 one of the shortest psalms to read, but one of the toughest to learn. And, and I, would, I would call it master's level spiritual thinking. It's not for babies. It's not because it's hard to understand. What I'm going to say today should be easily understood if I do my job. It's just hard for us to wrap our minds around because everything in us goes against what this psalm says. Our economy is built on a different force than what this economy says. Our dreams, our goals, our advertising, our, our manner of thinking, everything in us is different than what we're going to talk about today. So with that enticing introduction. Let's read Psalm 131. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is its soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. See, the psalm is difficult because it condemns ambition. It condemns that yearning within our hearts to better ourselves, to put ourselves in a better situation, to, to have more of what we think it takes to be happy in this world. It condemns ambition, and that's a common theme in the Bible. 
When you think about it, a lot of the stories in the Bible, a lot of the teachings in Scripture are about watch out for ambition. They will wreck your life. They will destroy your soul. The very first story in the Bible, Adam and Eve get thrown out of the Garden of Eden. Why? Because of ambition. Here were two people who were literally in paradise, who had everything anyone could possibly want, who had it better than anybody else who's ever lived on earth. You think about it. And they were able to throw all of that away simply because the devil planted the seed in their minds that said, God is holding out on you. There's something more that he's not giving you. You go ahead and eat this fruit and you'll get something greater than what you have. And they couldn't help it. Their ambition got the best of them. In Western civilization, this was a theme all throughout history. In fact, one of the most famous fictional stories in Western fiction is the story of Faust. Some of you know it's the story of a man who sells his soul to the devil for 24 years of being able to do whatever he wants and have whatever he needs. And that story's been told and retold in various formats down through the centuries. And now we live in a time when we don't believe that anymore. We live in a time when ambition is celebrated. You know, the, the, the little skit we did... Yeah, that's kind of silly and it's fun, but there are people who want the life. They want that life where I don't have to work, where I get everything handed to me, where I I can live on on a private island of my own and I can fly in a private jet and I can go to these incredible parties and I can experience these incredible things and, and wear expensive clothes and have this incredible lifestyle. And there are young people today who think that is the life. That is what we should all aspire to. And it's not just teenagers, and it's not just young adults. All of us are infested with ambition. We grow up swimming in it. In our culture, we admire the person who works 80 hours a week and never turns off her telephone, even when she's on vacation and when she makes partner in her firm. We're there to say, your hard work did this. Congratulations. You're an example to us all. We elect politicians not because they're principled, not because they stand for something we believe in. We elect them because they are successfully able to adapt their own speech, their own beliefs to whatever's most popular at the time, whatever captures the mood of their base. Those are the ones who get elected. Ambition wins over principle every time in the political arena. We love the stories of the person who starts out in his mom's garage apartment and creates a company that makes over a billion dollars. We put them on our magazine covers. We buy their books. We want to become them. You know, I I remember a few years ago, and I know this is going to be a a little bit of a polarizing story I'm going to tell because it's about somebody who played for the Dallas Cowboys. I myself am a Houston sports fan, but I grew up in Texas, so I don't mind rooting for both. Okay? Y'all still let me be your pastor? So years ago, a guy named Tony Romo became the quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys. Some of you know this. And when, I think it was his first or his second year, they were in the playoffs. And they were playing against Seattle. And late in the game, the Cowboys scored what should have been the tying touchdown. But on the extra point, by the way, if you're not a football guy or football gal, the extra point is something that they do at the end of every touchdown that is basically automatic. I mean, you can make it in your sleep. But on the extra point, Tony Romo fumbled the ball, and they lost the game. So one of the easiest plays in football, he blew it. In the locker room afterwards, the the media were all there asking him questions, and someone asked that classic question that always happens when when a famous athlete blows it. They said, well, how do you feel right now? And here's what he said. He said, if this is the worst thing that ever happens to me, then I will have lived a wonderful life. And I remember hearing him say that and thinking, man, I don't know who this Romo guy is, but that's a great attitude. 
But you know what? Everybody else, and I don't mean everybody in the world, but in the media, all you heard was people criticize him for that. Fans calling into talk shows, people writing articles saying, what a terrible attitude for an athlete. We want people who want to die rather than lose. We want people who cannot live with themselves if they can't finish on top. That's the kind of attitude we worship in our culture, ambition over everything else. And let me be clear about something. It is not wrong to want good things. It is not wrong to have goals. It is not wrong to work hard to save up your money and to better your circumstances. The book of Proverbs talks about that over and over again, how that is, that is a righteous desire, how that's, that is the way righteous and wise people live. So there's nothing wrong with those things. If you're an athlete and you're a Christian, you should hate to lose. You should play your hardest. If you're you're in the workplace and you're a Christian, you should work harder than anybody else in that place, and you should be excited about any opportunity you have to move up the ladder. That is good. That is wonderful. God blesses you with those opportunities. Take them. If you're in politics and you're a Christian, you should want to win your election. You You should be wise. You should be smart in how you run. Don't just say, okay, here's my name. I mean, it's good to campaign but do it in a Christ-like way. Here's here's what I'm saying. I'm not saying that wanting to do well is bad or or wanting to excel is bad or even to improve your circumstances in some way is bad. Obviously not. Here's what I'm saying. So let's say, for example, you're a single mom and you have three kids and you live in a terrible rent house in a part of town with high crime. Your landlord won't fix anything for you. Your electricity's off half the time. You've got a leaky roof. I mean, everything's going wrong. And you want very badly to be able to buy a house of your own in a neighborhood with safe streets and good schools and bike trails and all the things that make for a happy life. Is that a bad desire? Of course not. If you're able to work hard and save and buy that house, hallelujah. You should praise God for it. Here's what I'm saying, though. That cannot become, that must not be your driving goal. That cannot be the way you measure yourself as a mother, as a parent, as a human. Because if it is, you will destroy yourself. You'll destroy yourself trying to get that house. You'll get the house, and the house will destroy you. That is not what you base your life on. For one thing, if that becomes your number one thing, if that becomes your do or die goal, then you will have forfeited your most important role as a parent. And that is to be the number one spiritual influence on your children. If your whole goal is, well, I'm putting them in a better position to succeed, putting them in a good school, in a good house, that's great. But I got news for you. Your kids are better off living on the wrong side of the tracks with Jesus at the center of their lives than they are living in river oaks with ambition tearing them apart. So if all you teach them is, folks, you got to get ahead. Boys, girls, you got to get ahead. you got to get to a better place. You are are putting the seeds in their heart that that are going to destroy them. Whereas, if every Christmas... You're sitting there with them saying, yeah, guys, I'm sorry we're not in the nicer house yet, and yeah, we'd like to have more presents under the tree, but we love each other, and Jesus Christ is our Lord, and that won't change no matter what, and you're raising them in His love and His faithfulness, you have done your job. Do you see what I'm saying? It's not wrong to want better things. It is wrong to want better things above all else. What do we do? See, what do we do? How do we overcome ambition? 
Because right now, there are probably not a lot of people in this room who want to be a social media influencer when they grow up. Most of us are more realistic than that. But I bet most of us wouldn't want to be a guy who's on a battleship in the Pacific knowing he's going to go home to be a, a dairy farmer and, and get up every morning at 4 a.m. And, and be there in this little unincorporated community the rest of his life like my grandpa did. And yet my grandpa is happier than any social media influencer ever. Lived a more significant life than someone who lives on a private island and wears beautiful clothes and is famous just for being famous. I guarantee you. So how do we get that life? How do we achieve that victory over ambition. That's what Psalm 131 is about. Notice the first verse, he says, Lord, I, my heart's not lifted up. I don't occupy myself with things too great and too wonderful for me. What is he saying? He's saying, Lord, I don't feel like I'm entitled to more than you've given me. I'm not casting my eyes around saying, okay, what do I need next? What's next for me? I'm happy with what you give me. I'm happy being your child. And then he gives us in verse 2, the, the metaphor I want us to spend the rest of our time on. I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. So what does that mean? I would not have understood this until I had a child of my own, until I had kids of my own. So uh, when our firstborn was born, I came into parenthood very idealistic. I thought that I was going to be the best dad ever, that my kids would adore me, and that I would just be a natural at this whole parenting thing. And when my firstborn was born, at first at least, I and mean, we got a great relationship now, but when, we, when she was first born, she hated my guts. I mean, had no use for me whatsoever. Every time I would hold her immediately, she'd start screaming at me. And I, I finally told my wife, you know what she's saying, right? She can't talk, but what she's saying is, give me the one with the milk, because you're no good to me. She is at least some good to me. Give me the one with the milk. So I would give her to Carrie and things would get better. Now, it wasn't much easier for Carrie because she was basically a feeding station at this point in her life. And I know this is going to sound indelicate, but our daughter was at that age a slow sucker, which, which are words you probably never thought you'd hear a pastor say. But, with, but that meant that Carrie felt like she was constantly nursing because she would get done and then it would be time to nurse again and it would take a long time every time. And so at night, which happened a couple of times a night, she would try to keep herself entertained. We had a, we had a movie on DVD that she was trying to watch. I can't remember what movie it was, but so she would get up at two or three or one or whatever time it was, and she would nurse while she's watching this movie just to pass the time, but she'd fall asleep every time because it took so long. And so the next night when she'd get up to nurse again, she'd have to rewind the movie to the part where she had fallen asleep, and so it took her forever to finish this movie. Now, the interesting thing is that once she weaned Kaylee, what happened wasn't that Kaylee said, okay, mom, I'm done with you now. Can you uh, get me an apartment and a small car and, uh, you know, a bank account? No. At that point, those two were united. They were linked. Kaylee no longer wanted Carrie for her milk. She just wanted her mom. She wanted her mom for who she was. And that bond between them is, has never ended. See, the point is, a nursing baby is anything but calm and quiet. Cute, yes. Adorable, absolutely. 
Does her mom love her? You bet, he, you bet she does. Does her dad love her? Eventually he will. Yes. But when she's weaned, I mean, she's cute and adorable, but she's loud, she's needy, she's dependent, she's making everyone else around her miserable, but once she's weaned, everything changes. Once she's weaned, the mom becomes the center of her universe, not for what the mom can give her, but for simply who the mom is. And if you don't believe me, some of you have never been parents yet, you haven't been parents yet, you don't get this. If you don't know what this is like, or maybe you were a dad and you were just sort of out of the picture at this point because that's, you know, what do we have to offer? So all you have to do is go to our nursery and watch what happens every Sunday when the preacher's done and the moms come to pick up the the little ones, little two-year-old, little three-year-old, who's probably having a good time, but at some point gets upset because he's two, because he's three. And when mom shows up, everything changes. When mom shows up, eyes light up, smile on his face. He reaches out his fat little arms. He cannot believe she has come to him. This is the answer to all his prayers. This is the best thing that's ever happened. And sitting in the crook of her arm and sitting, resting comfortably on that hip, that is the happiest person on the face of the earth. A weaned child with its mother is happier than any billionaire on earth. And that's what the psalmist is saying. What the psalmist is saying is, when ambition is our driving factor, when ambition is at the steering wheel of our lives, we are miserable. We're constantly screaming for more. We're constantly asking for more. We're never satisfied. And we make everyone around us miserable too. We yell at them. We scream at them. We use them. We suck them dry. All because we want more. We want more. And in fact, I believe the religion of many Christians is bound up more in ambition than anything else. The religion of many Christians is simply an attempt, a pious attempt to manipulate God into giving us the life we want. To borrow from the headlines, I mean, now, thanks to the recent headlines, we all know a Latin phrase, quid pro quo, right? We all know what that means, thanks to the last week or so of news. We're trying to pull a quid pro quo on God. Okay, God, I'll believe this stuff, and I'll go to church, and I'll maybe even drop something in the offering plate once in a while, and I'll I'll do my best to follow your rules, but you better deliver for me, God, because I want want my circumstances to improve. I want healing for my body. I want better finances. I want want this person I'm married to to change, or if I'm not married, I want to get married, or if I don't have kids, I want kids, or if I have kids, I want my kids to 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 have a good life, and I want everything to go the way I want it to. Otherwise, what's it all for? Otherwise, why am I going through all this stuff? Why am I trying to live as a Christian if it's not going to pay off? Lord, this is our quid pro quo. Here's what I do. Here's what you do. I scratch your back. You scratch mine. Lord, this is what I'm doing. We use God for our own ambitions. So how do we overcome that? How do we find the contentment that brings us peace? that enables us, instead of constantly being on the lookout for what that next thing that's going to make us finally happy and peaceful, how do we get to be like that weaned child nestled up against his mom just saying, this is what I wanted? How do we do that? Number one, you have to want it. You have to want it. Contentment isn't just going to land on you. You're not just going to wake up one day with no desires anymore. I love in Philippians chapter 4. See, here's, here's an interesting story. The Apostle Paul was in prison. This is late in his life. 
he doesn't know if he's going to be executed or set free. And he gets a letter from his friends in Philippi. And these are Christian friends, church he himself planted. They write to him, they're concerned about him, they're praying for him. Here's a little gift for you, Paul, hope you can use it. And he writes them a thank you note. You know what the thank you note is? The thank you note is the letter to the Philippians that's in our Bible. And in that letter, in the fourth chapter, he writes these words. He says, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Now, let me do a quick poll. How many of you have ever heard those last words? I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Right. Almost all of you. For a lot of Christians, that's their favorite verse. But for a lot of Christians, they misuse it. The irony of this verse is a lot of Christians use it to prop up their own ambition. I've got ambitions, I've got dreams, I've got desires, and I can accomplish them all because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I want to be head of my class. I can do it. I want to, I want to be head of my industry. I can do it. I want to marry somebody fantastic and be blissfully happy. I can do it because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And the incredible irony is that Paul wrote those words in prison. And he wasn't saying, yeah, I could snap my fingers and be out of jail tomorrow if I wanted to because I can do all things through Christ. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I don't know if I'm going to live or die. That's up to God. But the truth is, because I have him, I can be happy even in this miserable cell. I can be happy even if you hadn't written me that letter and sent me that gift. I can be happy if everybody in the world forgets about me and I'm all alone here because I have Jesus. But I want you to notice something else. Two times in that verse, he uses the word learned, learned. In other words, contentment is not something you're either born with or you're not. It's something you can develop. It's something you can learn. It is a skill you can acquire, like riding a bike, like learning a language, like playing an instrument. You can learn it. And I say that because there are probably people here this morning saying, well, you don't understand, Jeff. I could never be content where I am right now. You don't know the person I'm married to and what it's like. You don't know the home I live in and what my parents are like. Or you don't know the health struggles I'm in the midst of. Or you don't know how miserable my job is. Or you don't know what I'm going through. So there's no way I could possibly be content. And Paul, writing from prison, says, oh, yes, you could. If you want to, God can teach you. He can teach you contentment. He can teach you the joy of being able to be happy right where you are. It is a skill. And the question I want to ask you is, in the days ahead, which one are you going to pursue? Which is going to be your priority? Is it your ambition or is it the search for contentment? Is it your ambition, your desires, your goals, your dreams, or is it, I want to be happy in you, Christ? And I'm not saying you can't do both. I'm saying one has to take priority. Because again, there's nothing wrong with wanting to be better. There is something wrong with wanting to have a successful, happy life by the earth's standards and that being your number one thing. So which are you going to pray for more in the days ahead? Which are you going to work harder for in the days ahead? Being happy in Christ or being the world's version of happy? Because right now, what I'm challenging you to do is do a very courageous thing and say to the Lord, Lord, you know what I want. I've, I've prayed for it many times. I'm just saying here today, what I want even more than that is the ability to be happy in whatever my circumstances. Would you teach me that, Lord? And if you give me that other stuff, great, I'll praise you for it. But in the meantime, 
make me happy with what I have, no matter where I am? Are you willing to pray that kind of prayer? Second thing, though, you got to want it. Number two, you have to wait for it. You have to wait for it. You're not going to pray today and wake up tomorrow and all your desires are gone. Your desires aren't actually bad. Contentment takes time. It's something you learn over time. Just like you don't wean a child overnight. You ever been in a house with a child that's being weaned? That is a miserable house to be in, let me just tell you. You're not going to get a lot of sleep. You're not going to be able to watch TV. It's hard being a dad, you know? That was a joke. But children who are being weaned are not happy. They don't enjoy it. Have you ever seen what happens the first time a mom puts a spoonful of food in the mouth of a baby? Have you seen this? Have you seen the look of betrayal on that child's face? If that child could speak, the child would say, what are you doing, woman, trying to kill me? That's not food. And yet, and yet, if the parent didn't take that step, think about all that child would miss out on. When we first started feeding Kaylee real food, um, one of the interesting, adorable things she would do is every time you'd put food in her mouth, as she was chewing, she would make this little sound. It was like this. Mm. And so we just thought that was great. That was her little processing food noise. Well, the day came when I decided to give her some ice cream. And this was not pre-planned. We were on vacation. We were in a restaurant. I was eating my favorite ice cream, which is mint chocolate chip. And I said to Carrie, hey, let's see what happens if we give her some of this. Now, you have to understand, up till now, all she had had is strained peas and things like that, right? Baby food. And I put this spoonful of mint chocolate chip in her mouth. And her eyes got large. And she went, Mm-hmm. The whole restaurant could hear. Everybody was looking at us. It was the greatest thing on earth because it was just such a, an intense moment of pleasure for that little child. And none of it would have been possible if we hadn't weaned her. I want you to hear something, and you're not going to like it. This is going to be your least favorite part of the sermon. You ready? How is a child weaned? Through strategic disappointment. Nobody's amening, are they? Strategic disappointment. In other words, how do we become like a weaned child with its mother? How do we become someone who is satisfied in all things? God has to choose, like we did as parents. We had to choose to say to our daughter at the time, I know you think you need this or you're going to die, but we're going to disappoint you so that you can see there are better things out there for you. And God has to do that with us. God has to do that with us. Sometimes we think, I must have this or I will die. And God says, oh, no, you won't. I'm here for you. I'm not going to let you go, but I'm not going to give you what you want because I've got something better. Could it not be? Because I guarantee you there are a lot of people in this room that are going through some very disappointing circumstances right now, and I am not the Holy Spirit. That's my all-purpose disclaimer. I say it nearly every week, but I will say this. I think every time we go through disappointing circumstances, we need to think to ourselves, what if this is God preparing me for something better? What if this is God weaning me off what I think I need in order to survive because He has something far, far, far better for me? Like a weaned child with its mother, you have to wait 
for it. And, and, and I know what some of you are thinking, because this is what I think whenever I think about this concept. Some of you are thinking, yeah, but Jeff, if I pursue contentment instead of pursuing my ambition, isn't that like settling for a lesser life? Doesn't that mean I'm going to live a mediocre life, but I'll be sort of satisfied with it? Wouldn't it be better if I pursued great things for myself? I mean, doesn't God want me to do great things? And I'm just telling you, that is the attitude of a nursing child. A nursing child thinks, if I don't scream my head off, if I don't get beat red, if I don't make everyone around me miserable, I'm never going to get what I want. And I'm never going to be happy. And so I am willing, I am willing to be the screaming wheel that gets the grease. That's the nursing child attitude. But a weaned child says, you know what? My mom loves me. My mom will give me whatever I need. I can be happy. And the crook of her arm, on the, resting on her hip, I can be happy just because I'm with her. See, the nursing child doesn't realize how much her mother loves her. She doesn't know it yet. She's not to that point yet where she can grasp that. She doesn't know that that woman would literally lay down her life for that child. Moms, am I right? Absolutely. I only got one mom to say amen to that. Come on. What we need to recognize when we're sitting here and we're tormented about this idea, yeah, you know, the Bible says I should pursue contentment, but there's so many good things out there and I don't want to live a mediocre life and I don't want to be in that rent house on the wrong side of the tracks. And don't you recognize that your father wouldn't just die for you, he did die for you. He took on human flesh for the specific purpose of dying for you. Now, let's do some math here. If there's a God who owns all things, can do everything, knows everything, and he loves you that much, is there really any risk to you trusting him with your happiness? Is there any chance, even the remotest chance, that someday you're going to stand in heaven, you're going to look back on the course of your life and say, you know, I would have been better off if I called my own shots. You know, if God just would have given me a few more things that I asked for, things would have turned out better. That's ridiculous. A God who loves you that much, who knows all things, who wants nothing but the best for you, if you entrust Him with your life, you will never regret it. So what I'm asking you to do is to say, Lord, I don't believe my desires are a better guide for my life than the will of the one who formed me in my mother's womb and who loves me enough to die for me. So, Lord, teach me contentment. Help me to pursue being happy in you. And if you give me some good things along the way that I want, then I'll praise you for them. But if you don't, I'll just trust that you've got something better in mind. Come to him today. I mean say those words to him. And then get up tomorrow and say them again. Come to Him with your arms wide open, with joy in your heart. Come to Him knowing that in His presence there is is peace and there is joy and there is an end to the rat race and to the torment and to the anxiety. Tell Him that the heart of a weaned child is what you want today. Will you do that? Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you, and Lord, this is indeed a difficult message for us because we've been taught to believe that uh, our desires should guide us and that that we should listen to our hearts, that we should uh, follow our instincts. Lord, our whole economy is built on that. Everything we do, Lord, is wrapped around getting what we want. And Lord, for some of us, if we're honest, even our faith in you was based on that. 
But I pray, Lord, that you would change our hearts. Help us to see that our ambitions often bring us nothing but misery. Help us, Lord, to be the best we can be in you. And yet, I pray that our number one goal, that our consuming passion would be knowing you better, becoming more and more satisfied in you, in who you are, to the point where we just love you for who you are instead of for what you give us. And Lord, most of us are a long way from being there, but I pray that we would pursue that. Lord, I pray that we would become like a weaned child with its mother. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So we're going to sing an old, old song right now, and it's a perfect song for, for what we've talked about today. It's called I Surrender All. And as you sing that song, make sure you mean it. And what you mean is, Lord, I'm surrendering to you my hopes and dreams. I'm surrendering, surrendering to you my desires and the things I can't live without. And I'm telling you, Lord, that I trust you with them. And even if you choose not to give me any of those things, I want to be happy in you. Can you sing that song to him this morning? If you don't know Christ as your Savior, if you haven't yet to experience that experience of I'm a new person in Jesus and I know I'm forgiven and I'm His forevermore, you can come forward while we're singing and I can tell you the next steps to take and your life will change forever. If you're ready to join this church family as a, as a believer in Jesus and you want to walk alongside us, you can come forward as well and, and I will help you uh, take those next steps and this church will be glad to receive you. Or if you just need prayer, come forward. But otherwise, let's stand and let's sing. Let's surrender all to Him this morning.